This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. The Buddha said, these are the, these are the five factors that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, or lay or ordained. Which five? I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot avoid growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. I cannot avoid ill health. I am of the nature to die. I cannot avoid death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. I cannot avoid being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot avoid the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. This teaching is called the Five Remembrances, and it appears in the Upajatana Sutta, Subjects of, of uh, Contemplation. And you know, commentators say that the first three, uh, old age, sickness, and, and death, they serve to replicate in the thoughtful disciple, the thoughtful student, the same awakening to the inevitable, inescapable realities of what we call the human condition that the Buddha experienced when he was still living in the palace. And as you know, the story goes that he saw an old person, and he saw a sick person, and he saw a corpse, and not just wondered, but, but was so disturbed by that reality because he had been so protected in his upbringing that he too would be subject to old age, sickness, and death, that that is what compelled him to go on the path to begin practicing. And one version of the story says that then he saw a mendicant, an ascetic wanderer, and he saw that is the way, that is the path for me. It is also said that these first three contemplations are the antidote for the conceit of youth, the conceit of health, and the conceit of life. And it's, a, it's an interesting term, you know, conceit, because we, we think there's such a given that we're alive, first of all, that youth and health are our right. And here the Buddha is saying, no, actually you can, you can become conceited. You can become self-preoccupied. You can become intoxicated, in fact, and therefore more prone to ignorance. Sobriety, then, is to very carefully reflect in the following way. There are beings who are intoxicated with a typical youth's intoxication with youth. Because of that intoxication with youth, they conduct themselves in a bad way, in body, in speech, and in mind. But when they reflect on that fact, that youth's intoxication with youth will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. So he's really saying simply by the fact that you're reflecting on this fact of youth, this apparent given, 
you'll begin to see, oh, perhaps this is not so given as I believe that it is. And your, your love of youth will grow weaker. The same is true of illness, of death, of impermanence, of the nature of my actions. And then he says, a disciple of the noble ones considers this, I am not the only one subject to aging who has not gone beyond aging. To the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are subject to aging, have not gone beyond aging. And when they reflect on this, the factors of the path take birth. They stick with that path, the practitioner, the disciple. They develop it and cultivate it. And as they stick with that path, develop and cultivate it, the fetters are abandoned, the obsessions are destroyed. And the, the wording that I, that I used for the five remembrances is actually a, a, an amalgam of Thich Nhat Hanh's wording and um, Tanisaru Bhikkhu. Thich Nhat Hanh's wording is very, is very human, it's very warm compared to the sutras. But he uses the word escape. He says, you know, I'm, I'm of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. And I decided to use for that second part, um, Tanisaru Bhikkhu, because there is a distinction. You know, escape makes it sound as if we're, we're doomed to suffer old age, sickness, and death, which, of course, is very much how we experience it often. And another translation says going beyond, and in fact this one speaks about not, not going beyond, not having gone beyond yet. And there is such a thing. There is being free of old age, sickness, and death, of seeing through them. And still, I, I stayed with avoid because you know, this isn't some kind of superhero story where somehow if we practice long and hard enough, we will live forever. We will not get sick. And although we don't usually say it outright, I think it's some deep within us, there's some hope, some wish that if we practice, and certainly that if we become realized, that we will not experience sickness or pain, that we will not die. And of course, we are still subject. The Buddha himself, a perfectly enlightened being, grew old and was sick. He had back problems, in fact, that he complained about in his old age. And he died. And so it can be about escape. It's simply about living awake, living an awake life. In, in the practice of reciting or chanting, the Thich Nhat Hanh's Sangha chants the five remembrances, we remind ourselves that there is old age, sickness, and death, which seems like an obvious fact, but it, it isn't, actually. It is not unusual for us to be offended by our old age, to be surprised by illness, to feel cheated by impending death, as if somehow, somewhere, we just we took a wrong turn. And if we can just get back on the path, we'll be spared. My, my uh, grandmother died of cancer at the age of 86. And it was a very seamless death. It was very smooth. She was not in pain, which was fortunate. 
and she had lived the full life. And to me, I, re- I remember I was there for about a week, um, maybe about a month before she died, and it seemed like such a logical step. First you live, and then you die. But because it was such a seamless death, I think I was able to, to feel that. I didn't even feel uh, grief in the usual way. I mean, I was, I was sad that she wasn't there anymore, but it, um, it was a very different... I had experienced other kinds of death, and this was very... Um, it left no wake behind it. And not all deaths are like that. And we die as we have lived. And I read in, in one of the Tibetan books, uh, I can't remember who it was, a teacher who said, all of Buddhist teaching is preparing you to die well. And it's a, a strong statement, if you think about it. But I think it's just another way of saying, it's, it, all Buddhist teaching is preparing you to live well, so that you can die well. And this isn't at all a pessimistic teaching. You know, it's not meant to bring us down. Quite the opposite. It's meant to remind us of the preciousness of human life. It's meant to give us a way to fully appreciate the gift that is human life so that we can fully use it. So we can keep an eye on what is most important. And so the Buddha says, there's also the bare truth of impermanence. Everyone I love, everything I hold dear, I hold close, will change. We will be separated. And this isn't a failure in the system. This is how the system is supposed to work. And because of this, we can let go of our burden. A teacher said uh, once, just as matter cannot move at the speed of light, the self cannot move at the speed of impermanence. I always like that. And, you know, of course, Einstein's famous mass energy equivalency um, is saying that even an an object that has a very small amount of matter requires enormous amount of of, of energy to move. And because they are equivalent, energy and mass, the closer that object gets to the speed of light, the more, the faster its mass increases, which means it just needs more energy. And so at a certain point, its mass becomes infinite. And so it cannot, it is impossible for it to travel at the speed of light. And the self exactly is like this. You know, the more energy we give it, the more its mass increases, the more its weight increases. So the fourth of the five remembers is saying, set down the burden. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. I cannot avoid being separated from them. I mean, we we know this, we hear this, you cannot take it with you. Not taking it with you, why do we carry it around? In in a koan, a monk asks the great Master Zhaozhou, how is it when nothing comes up? You know, how is it really when, you, when you're abiding in emptiness, when you have nothing, you're carrying nothing? And Zhaozhu says, cast it off. And the monk says, but there's nothing. Nothing is coming up, so how can I cast it off? And Zhaozhu says, well, then carry it with you. 
Do we know what we're carrying? Do we know what we're carrying? Why we're carrying it? And do we really need to? Have we ever wondered, do we really need to? Because so often it feels like life, we're just moving through life with a, a bag of cement strapped to our backs. And we're, we're way down under the burden. And we wonder why we're so exhausted all the time. And I think when we enter into practice, we start to look around and see, well, everybody has the bag of cement. But maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe I don't have to pick it up to begin with. Maybe I can set it down. And then there's the fifth remembrance. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot avoid the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. And this is always true. Whether we see and understand our actions, whether we know where we're standing, what even the ground is, this is always true. We're always standing on what we say, what we do, what we think, and their consequences. And that's the only thing that we have. Another translation says that I fall heir to my actions. But I, I like this better, this, this image of, of the, the ground that we're stepping on is, is made out of my actions. And so when we look at the paramitas, the the virtues of an awakened being, if you take a step back and even ask yourself, why would I want to live a virtuous life? This is, this is a reason. Because that's what we have, ultimately. Knowing that my actions are my only true belongings, knowing that they are my ground, I vow to be giving. I vow to act with virtue, to renounce what is unskillful, to cultivate and realize wisdom, to exert effort, to be patient, to speak truthfully, to have determination, to offer loving kindness, and to remain in equanimity. The 10 paramitas. And I will do so, I will practice them in this way, not out of some sense of uh, self-sacrifice, but because they are the way to happiness, they are the way to freedom, the way to peace. Like that famous quote by A.J. Must, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. But do you think, you know, when, when you hear this, do you think, you know, but what about just having fun? You know, what about a full life? Because I've thought this. You know, it's a, it's a saintly way to live, a, a noble way to live. But it feels like I'd be missing out on something. I mean, what if I'm... I'm really working to be peaceful and, and compassionate, but everybody else is just doing whatever they want. So will it really have made any difference ultimately? I will have sacrificed myself for nothing. Isn't it better to just, to just enjoy life as much as possible? And of course, this is our choice. How we live is always our choice. The teachings are certainly not telling us how to live. But they are saying, you know, just notice. Just notice what happens. Notice how you feel when you act in a certain way. Not so that you can 
strap yourself into a straight jacket of virtue, but so that you can be free. So that you can make those choices that will bring you and others happiness. True happiness, lasting happiness. We spend so much time, really, so much time concerned about what others think of us, for example. And very little time thinking about what we think about us. And I don't mean um, measuring ourselves or, or judging ourselves. We certainly do enough of that. But deeply understanding ourselves. Somebody uh, sent me an article that appeared in the Atlantic about the spotlight effect that basically just shows how um, we greatly overestimate how much others are thinking and noticing us. So they sent people out to a party wearing a Barry Manilow t-shirt and uh, then they (laughs) they, (laughs) they measured how much that person thought the others were judging them uh, for wearing their very minor little t-shirt. <laughs> and people greatly overestimated the amount of time that others were spending thinking about them. And the same was true if they wore a, a Martin Luther King t-shirt or a, um, what was the other one, Bob Marley t-shirt. And so whether the, the feedback, if you will, that we're getting is positive or negative, we tend to think that others are thinking about us much more than they really are. Why? Because they're worrying that you're thinking about them. <laughs> so, I mean, we say something, right? And we're horrified. Like for days, we mull it over. And meanwhile, the other person, five minutes after the conversation ended, they forgot already. And so a practice like this is, is reminding us. You know, we, we don't have time to worry about what others are thinking uh, of, of us. I mean, even if they are thinking of you, it's not really your concern. What is your concern is what you're thinking of you and what you are thinking of them, with them, saying to them, doing with them and to them. That's what we have power over. I was rereading recently a story by uh, Ursula Le Guin And it's a science fiction story, but it it presented a very interesting situation to to my mind. Um, They're going to this planet. They're on a spaceship. It's 10 people. And they're all very neurotic, each in their own way. They're almost a a caricature of our clichés, our um, attachments. One of them is just desire personified. Another one is uh, anger. Another one is fear. Um, Another one is... The, the one who pulls back when anything gets a little tough. And one of the crew is an empath who had been um, uh, unable, in fact, to relate to others. And through working with this scientist, he really went to the other side and became an empath. And so he can pretty much not quite read people's minds, but he can feel them. And physically, he's very uh, challenging to look at, I guess you could say. He's, he's almost transparent, his skin, so you can see his veins. And um, he's almost like an albino, more than an albino. He looks like he's transparent. 
and, um, and he's not a nice person at all. And so it creates this feedback loop because the, the, the rest of the crew's dislike for him, he can sense constantly. And that's what he gives them right back. I mean, he's extremely hostile. He's a very angry person. And so he just feeds their dislike, which after a short period of time becomes outright hatred. And in a very tight space, you can imagine that's challenging enough. But then they get to this planet where the trees are, can feel as well. And they're connected. So at the farthest end of the world, whatever that tree feels, the tree at the other end of the world will feel as well. And so they arrive, this crew arrives, the empath is volunteers to basically go into the forest, and he's attacked, and at first you don't know by who. And the, tree, the trees basically absorb his terror and are reflecting it right back. And so at a certain point, the crew is literally immobilized. They, 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 they are paralyzed by their own fear. And it's this perfectly closed system. And I won't tell you the ending in case you want to read it. It's called Vaster Than Empires and More Slow. I mean, how could you not read a story with a, a title like that? And as I was reading, I couldn't help thinking, you know, what if you just dropped the Dalai Lama in their midst? <laughs> you know, just one person who could have a little bit, who could offer the empath just a little bit of kindness, who could see him fully for who he was, unconditionally, really, as a human being. Just enough to break that cycle, just enough to, to create a crack for the light to get in. One person to stand on their own ground and not be moved, not be swayed by the anger coming towards them, by the fear, by the jealousy, the contempt. And, you know, we can't read each other's minds, and I think that's a good thing. But the fact is that we can and do feel each other constantly, and we respond accordingly. We cannot help but respond accordingly, unless we know, we understand the ground upon which we stand, and we choose to not just react. This is really uh, an aside, but as I was driving down here, I was with someone else in the car, and I was telling them, uh, we, were, we were on the, on the road near the monastery, and one time I was driving that road, and I was by myself, and there was a huge snapping turtle, probably about this big, right on the middle of the road. So I stopped. I was concerned that it was going to get hit. And so I stopped on the side, and then another car stopped in front of me, and um, a woman got out. And we're like, you know, how do we move this snapping turtle? And so she said, oh, I have gloves in the car. So she got her gloves, and I grabbed a stick, you know, probably about that thick. It was quite big. And so I just held it to the snapping turtle's mouth, and the thing just went, I mean, it could have snapped my hand off. And so it's grabbing onto the thing, and the woman comes from the back and holds her, basically, because apparently snapping turtles can turn all the way back. They can reach with their neck. 
And so I knew that. And so I had the stick, and she just picked it up, and we took it back and put it on the, the side of the road. And then I started driving away. And then I had a very strong <laughs> thought in my mind, either because I felt something or because I just made it up, that there was the turtle on the side of the road going, you bitches, I wanted to get to the <laughs> other side, you know? <laughs> I felt so bad, you know, all that work, and we just put her right back. <laughs> So how do we stand on our own ground and not be swayed and not be swayed by all sorts of winds coming toward us? You know, like if you're going home, the holidays is such a, was such a big thing for this, right? And when you, you're going home and you know every time you say X, your mother is going to say Y and you're just going to fly off the handle. What if you anticipate that she's likely to say X, or you're likely to say X, and she's likely to say Y, and you might fly off the handle. And so what could you do differently? And somebody else suggested this to me. And I, the first time she told me, I thought, you know, that's not Zen. That's not being in the moment. And then I thought, well, neither is you know, blowing off in a flurry of words, angry words, and slamming doors. So I tried it. I thought, okay, I'll anticipate that this situation is likely to happen, given me, given my family. What will I do? Can I do it differently? And it worked. It worked. So you're, you're looking at your mind in a moment when it's not so charged, knowing yourself, knowing your condition, you have the medicine ready. It's like having an EpiPen, your spiritual EpiPen. Because, you know, ultimately, the most skillful teaching is the one that you'll remember. The one you can actually do in a moment of anger, for example, that is so charged. And that we're invested in, because anger feels good. One of the reasons that we, that we feed it is because it feels good, it feels powerful. And so in that moment, what's the medicine? Maybe it's just refraining, just renouncing your right to be angry in that moment. Maybe you can do more in the next moment. Maybe you can offer a kind word, a thought, a kind thought at least. But see, that's why, why uh, knowing yourself becomes so important. Because practice shows us how to work with our minds very, very clearly, very directly and how to work with the circumstances to act in the most skillful way. And there are, there are a myriad teachings that we can draw from. The 16 precepts, the five remembrances, the four immeasurables, the 10 paramitas, 59 slogans for training the mind, not to mention teachings in other religious traditions. They can point the way. Teachings from people who have deeply studied the mind and have developed these um, ways, these antidotes. And now they're, they're, they're offering them to us, just saying, just try this. See for yourself if this works for you. And I think of how much of 
practice is being deeply interested in the mind so that we can act, in fact, clearly and not just react, deflect, brace ourselves. It is being uh, deeply interested in the human condition that the Buddha really is spelling out quite um, precisely here and in every sutra. He's not leaving anything to chance. He's not surprised by any state of being. And we can very much benefit from his study, although we still have to confirm it for ourselves. And that's the only way that it has power, ultimately. But we can take it, take what he saw and heard and wonder ourselves, is is this true for me? And what is the most effective antidote for this moment, this ill? So that on our deathbed, if, if we're fortunate enough to have one, to have that time, that you know, hopefully we won't be thinking about what others are thinking of us. We won't be thinking, you know, I wish I had made more payments to my mortgage. I wish I had bought more shirts on sale. But we're thinking, you know, what did I do? What did I fail to do? And that the mark of our passing is not then our stuff but really our very life itself. As I said, what we did, what we said, what we thought, how we were with others. And that if we have lived well, when it comes that time to tally our debts, then we may find that we have none and that therefore we have no regrets. And the end with this poem by, uh, poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Burning the Old Year. Letters swallow themselves in seconds. Notes, friend tied to the doorknob, transparent scarlet paper, sizzle like moth wings, marry the air. So much of any year is flammable. List of vegetables, partial poems, orange swirling flame of days. So little is a stone. Where there was something and suddenly isn't, an absence shouts, celebrates, leaves a space. I begin again with the smallest numbers. Quick dance, shuffle of losses and leaves, only the things I didn't do crackle after the blazing dies. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.